Blog Talk Radio. program is brought to you by Bread and Roses, feminist news and public affairs on KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon, since 1978, the longest-running feminist radio program in the country. We are now proud to bring our women-produced programming to Sylvia Global Media Network. Welcome to Bread and Roses. I'm Delphine Crichenzo. Bread and Roses is a collective of women-identified radio activists bringing you feminist news and public affairs every Friday at 6 p.m. here on your community radio station, KBOO 90.7 FM. Women have had this forum on KBOO since 1978, therefore making Bread and Roses the longest-running feminist show in the nation. You can also find us on Facebook under KBOO Bread and Roses. And if you would like to join our collective of women hosts, producers, and engineers, please contact Ani Haynes, KBU Volunteer Manager, at volunteer at kboo.org. In May last year on Bread and Roses, I welcome Rose Band, a local female hip-hop crew. During the interview, Kiyoshi Taylor Mays and Jackie Dixon talked about their band, Sexism and Hip-Hop, and the local scene. At one point, Kiyoshi shared with me that she feels the hip-hop scene in Portland is dying because the police is shutting us down. When I asked her to clarify, this is what she said. Even though we used to have a bigger scene back in the day, it's just not really welcomed here because of, you know, some people just don't know how to act. And I'm not talking about necessarily the musicians, but some people who show up at the venues and they Mm -hmm. ruin it for everyone else. And so I feel like um, the police have kind of, Shut it down. Um, basically threatening liquor licenses if they allow hip-hop. So uh, it's just really hard not to get racial with it. But, you know, oh, it's like if, <laughs> if white boys go crazy and they act stupid and they have bar fights, it's just a bar fight. The bar doesn't get mm-hmm. shut down. But if it's black people or people of color who are fighting, then it's gang-related. Automatically, that's the mm-hmm. first thing you hear is gang-related. And they want to shut it down, you know. Well, her comments uh, made me reflect on um, the phenomenon we call gentrification and how shutting down venues that play um, hip-hop music in certain areas of the city is further alienating the black community and somehow contributing to the forced relocation of black residents. I decided to investigate a little further by sitting down with local residents and hip-hop artists and ask them their opinion about the phenomenon. 
Tonight, I play an interview with Chris Reiser and Kip Kruger, sharing their opinions on gentrification and the hip-hop scene in Portland, and how the latter has been affected by this shift in the urban landscape that is forcing the African-American community out of North Portland. Chris Reiser is a husband, father, thinker, and middle school teacher in Portland Public Schools. He's passionate about history, hip-hop, and what it takes to develop lifelong learnings and a sense of agency in the next generation. Kip Kruger, a.k.a. Northern Draw, is a local artist, producer, event organizer, writer, and traveler that is focused on social and environmental rights issues. Well, I started by asking Chris about um, the role that hip-hop plays in his life. Hip-hop to me, wow. Hip-hop, and this, is, this might sound cliche, and I guess it is cliche at this point, but hip-hop saved my life. Mm. Um, I was doing, I was making a lot of bad decisions with my friends uh, growing up, um, and you know, I dropped out of high school. Um, it really wasn't the thing for me, and my, I got my education through hip hop. You know, my writing skills from writing lyrics, um, making beats, um, and messing with, with um, you know, mathematical theory to try to you know make beats based on math and numbers, um, and so I really was applying the, all the stuff that they try to teach you in school by practicing hip-hop with my friends. And um, that was like the positive outlet for me um, and really formed some incredible peer relationships in that way that kept me from doing stuff that would have been far worse for me and would have ended me up, you know, in prison. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, from the age of uh, 14, I started writing my own rhymes and making my own beats um, on a computer that my brother stole from his school. And, uh, you know, that's that's where it all started for me. And just being able to, even though we didn't have a lot of resources, having that computer, I could do something that a lot of my friends couldn't do, mm-hmm. uh, didn't have access to that, um, even that minimal level of technology. So, yeah, so for me, it was it was um, a huge thing as a young person. And then for a very long time as a young adult, I held on to the possibility of actually doing something with, with the art. And um, until I, you know, kind of came to a crossroads in getting my, my college education and went down the path of becoming a teacher. But now I see it as an opportunity to bring hip-hop into my classroom and to pass on the value of hip-hop to another generation um and so now it's like i take on a different role and i get to i get to be an mc in a different way i guess you could say Mm -hmm. so it's really hasn't left me but it's definitely shaped my life significantly and you say that hip-hop is um a value but can you speak also of the values that it's trying to um uh to to teach people yeah well i think what really resonates you know because now you can find hip-hop is sprouting up indigenously across the world right where people hear it and something resonates uh with these oppressed peoples all around the world and when you look at where hip-hop came from from the south bronx in the 70s and that community was totally devastated uh, the president then, Carter, came in and said it looked like Dresden in uh, World War II after it had been bombed. Mm. And that was where hip-hop came from. And these kids who were invisible to to the larger society, who were pushed out of their schools, 
they had drugs infesting their community, violence in their community, and the thing that they did was they created something beautiful out of that, the artistic expression of graffiti, um, the innovation, the technical innovation of the turntablists um, to learn signal processing and really complex and technical skills and then to innovate on that. Um, the MCs who were spontaneously, you know, creating words and putting um, meaningful sentences together. Like, it was just amazing to see that out of all the possibilities for these kids that they created something beautiful and something unifying and something peaceful. And um, that that remains um, remarkable to me. But it also, you know, when I just tell that story, those kids who are in those same conditions today, no matter where they are, it hits them and they're like that that could be me and there's an instant identification with with those values mm-hmm. um kip what does hip-hop means to you well firstly i would like to say thank you for very much having me on the show i would also like to thank um everyone from the east coast that did start this movement this culture it is uh, i think at the doorstep of the 40th anniversary i believe of, of hip-hop so this year. big shout out to cool herc um Bumbada, everyone that started this up et cetera. Et cetera. Um, to me, and where it in, came to be involved in my life is definitely a large group of elements that help me balance out myself personally. Because um, if people don't know what hip-hop is, it's comprised of four elements, emceeing, DJing, breakdancing, graffiti. Um, so I was involved in all these things growing up because I felt like it was a good way for me to branch out, meet people, build myself mentally, physically, spiritually. And I still think that's the same way. Um, as well, I was also skateboarding. I thought that was a huge part of it. And uh, one of the reasons why I was so opened up to hip-hop and rap music was because my involvement in skateboarding as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, you know, because they're both, they were both pushed to the fringe, right? Like, not acceptable. Skateboarding is a crime, and hip-hop is not music, and it's not a valid cultural form. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to jump something. I don't know if I should say this right off the bat, but there was a lot of punk music that was heavily involved in skateboarding, too. And I saw across, I, I still think that punk movement and hip hop movement are very similar because a lot of big graffiti artists, they didn't even listen to, mm-hmm. to hip hop music. They were just into punk music, mm-hmm. you know? But mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, um, Kip, you were born in Portland, and Chris, you moved to Portland. Can you talk about growing up in Portland and loving hip hop? So, like, what did that feel like? Well, um, yeah, I was born in Portland. Hip-hop has never had a really large scene here. It's always been a lot more based around indie rock. I believe it's been like the one power scene. I don't know. <laughs> so maybe it might have been that, that hip-hop wasn't a huge scene. It also had me more intrigued about it because I've always been into kind of the underdog stuff. But even more so, I grew up in southwest Portland, which is like a cultural vacuum. You know, nothing's going on. And I started a hip-hop club in my high school, and, you know, a lot of the kids just didn't understand it. I was in the halls with, like, one other person every day breakdancing with some boombox I'd bring to, to, you know, to lunch. And everyone just didn't get it, you know. And uh, the same thing at PCC, Sylvania, where Chris and I met. We started a hip-hop club there. I think you started. I kind of mm-hmm. joined. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that had, had the ball rolling a little bit more because, you know, it's a different age and people have matured a little bit. And they have a little bit more diversity from different areas of the world, the town, neighborhood. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, um, for me, it was really interesting. You know, um, I remember being, you know, I left Detroit when I was seven. And most of the memories that I have of Detroit are really negative, you know, violent 
um, memories. And but one one memory that stands out is seeing a Beastie Boys music video on the TV and wanting to do that. And um, you know, but just in a real abstract way, um, like a you know a toddler would think about it. And um, but I explicitly remember these crazy white guys like all up on my TV screen, right? And just like wow. Um, and other than that, I don't really have any memories of like uh, hip hop in in Detroit. And then you know, seven years old, um, move from that situation, you know, this crumbling inner city to uh, Beaverton, uh, Oregon, where you know I went from being one of the lightest kids in my class in the first grade in Detroit to being the black kid in. Beaverton, and I still have my pictures, right? So I can look at my class pictures and see I'm not even really that dark, you know, I'm half white, half black. And so, but to everybody else in the classroom, I was the black kid. And in Detroit, that didn't even, never came into play, right? We just played as kids, and some kids you didn't get along with, and some kids you did. And then when it became so apparent here, that was a huge culture shock because everybody was identifying me. I wasn't able to identify myself. And so that was like my first encounter with my own racial identity was people telling me who I was. Um, so then, you know, uh, I remember playing some tapes with, with some of my friends and um, we used to pretend like we were going to be rappers like nine years old, you know. And um, that that was when I really first was like, I'm going to do this and I don't know how. And then it wasn't until 14 that I really got that opportunity. Um to start doing it and really kind of branched out from being a listener, you know, and listening to like Too Short and um, Spice One and some of the what would be labeled as gangster rap. Um, and then I started moving into actually a friend of mine, Eric Hanamura, who is uh, Japanese American. He was the one he was like, dude, he had he had a vinyl collection and he's like, listen to this. And he played me six different versions of the Fuji's vocab. And there was like all these different remixes on the on the vinyl, and I was like, "What is this?" It was just like completely different from everything else. Um, and so, you know, so he really opened me up to this whole other aspect of hip hop. And then I was like, "Now I know there's something out there that more accurately reflects how I feel mm -hmm. and the stories I want to tell." So that's that. That was yeah. That was my my. Um, my kind of experience in, in Beaverton. Um, I'll also say too, that it was really interesting that, you know, people think Beaverton and they think affluent suburb, but I lived in apartments and I was, a, I lived in a low income family, single parent family where she was working two or three jobs. And only now are people starting to understand with the, with this whole process of gentrification where the concentration of poverty has gone from a core to now it's moving into a ring now people are starting to understand that there are these pockets of intense poverty that already exist in the suburbs, but nobody noticed them. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting to see that process take shape and to see more people of color come out into the suburbs and out into Southwest Portland um, as it becomes increasingly impossible to live in neighborhoods like Woodlawn and um, you know, the historic Albina neighborhood. And uh, you both are performers. Whenever you started um, performing and trying to find, you know, venues to maybe potentially perform, what was the response? Oh, it was crazy. Uh, like, the first place I ever did a show, uh, DJ Wicked was there with DJ Void. They were the um, audio orphans, and they were kind of headlining the show. 
And it was at this, uh, like, Latino restaurant slash weekend, like, disco venue, right? In, like, deep southeast Portland. I don't even, I couldn't even tell you where that place is now. It was, like, so foreign to me at the time. Like, I had no idea where we were. But that was it. It was, like, a restaurant, you know? Um, and so it was really difficult to find like legit venues. And at the same time we were still cutting our teeth and people didn't know who we were, or what we were about. So we were trying to make our way, but yeah, that was the experience was that it was, um, pretty difficult. But when I first did that, you know, that was before like, um, Pohop and when cool nuts was really, you know, he had his show here on Kabu um, that he was doing. And then he started doing the Pohop thing um, and then I feel like really the switch happened where people could point to an incident was when there was, I, I can't remember if it was a stabbing or shooting at one of the POHOP events. And then every, every venue in the city was like, nope, told you so. This black music is, is terrible and it's, it's just going to bring violence. So. Did you feel that uh, there was, um, so we say the the um, Albina neighborhood has been really like historically the, the black neighborhood in Portland. Uh, do you feel that um, hip hop was kind of like the first time that the rest of Portland was kind of ex exposed to black music? Um, no, there is a huge jazz scene here. So Actually, Williams Avenue was like the spot and the some of the biggest names in jazz um, big band, you know, uh, Dizzy Gillespie would come out and play uh, a joint on Williams. Um, and uh, there's a book, I uh, can't remember the name of it now, um, Jump Town, I think it's called, and it's all about the, the jazz history of Portland. And um, But the thing was, is like, you know, you had to be one of those white folks who got it if you were going to come down to Williams and listen to some jazz music, you know, because it was a very segregated time, and especially in, in Portland and in Oregon. Um, is, is it not still segregated? Yeah, absolutely. But we like to talk about it not, whereas at that time it was okay to call a black person the N-word, and it was okay to be blatantly racist, whereas now though we have the same conditions. It's, it's complicated because the people who think it, they know better than to say it. And so, yeah, but so it was very, very much a black music thing. So in terms of the wider exposure, you know, that's questionable. Mm-hmm. Kip? I mean, Portland was one of, like, a couple other states that I think barred, like, African Americans from living in the state for a long time. I think... Uh, it, Public whipping. Wow. It's pretty scary. I didn't know about that. Mm. But I know that the, the big increase of that population did come... Um, from the World War II in Vanport, the population of Van, uh, Vanport to, to work on ships for World War II. And uh, if people don't know about it, um, that's the Vanport floods. It's very similar to Katrina, kind of the same thing that happened years before uh, in the 40s. Uh, research that if you don't know about that. And also that's th where PSU came from. Originally mm -hmm. it was Vanport Community College. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and... Yeah, that and that definitely like before um before Kaiser Steel um which is also uh Kaiser Permanente was the healthcare group that Kaiser Steel started to insure its employees. So Kaiser Steel recruited black folks from the south to come to Portland to work. Mm -hmm. Before that, there were <clears throat> estimates are around 1500 black people in the city of Portland. Um after that there was uh, between 15 and 19,000. Some people have different numbers. Um, and 
when you throw into that uh, the floods, um, because they had a place to live, uh, the housing wasn't permanent. They didn't tie the houses down to the foundation. So when the flood hit, the houses just floated away. Um, but uh, then that black community that was displaced, there were white folks. It was an integrated community. Well, there were black folks and white folks living in that Vanport area. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard some people say that it was actually segregated with the exception of the schools, but that black folks and white folks lived in the same community together. When the floods happened, the white folks could find housing. The black folks could not. And that practice of redlining that, that existed all the way up through the 70s as a practice of the real estate board um, hugely um, impacted black folks' ability to find housing. And so that was where the, the plight of um, the black community really started. And they actually experienced just from the floods to, um, I think, the late 90s, there were five relocations of the black community um, in various parts of the east side of Portland, depending on what the city felt needed to be done with the land that black folks were living on. And I would like to mention on that, too, on the redlining of, of those communities, what, I've, what I was listening to and I've heard um, is that one benefit that, that did actually come out from that was building a stronger community and being able to live next to people that were of a lot of different you know, professions, like, oh, my neighbor over here is a lawyer, my neighbor over here is as a dentist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that currently, which has been a huge issue in the last 10 years of the gentrification of Portland, is, is you're dismantling these communities that have been here and have had these roots for a long period of time. And people are completely ignorant to it. And you know, so many people moving here just have no idea about the roots of Portland. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. by Northern Draw, a.k.a. Kip Kruger. You're listening to Brad and Roses. I'm Delphine Crescenzo. And tonight I play an interview with Chris Reiser and Kip Kruger, Chris Reiser and Kip Kruger um, during which we discuss hip-hop and gentrification in Portland. In the second part of our interview, Kip and Chris are discussing the racial history of Portland. the reality of the African-American community here in Portland today and then yet yeah, speak about gentrification, maybe what that is and what it means. So I just happened to, I, I got the opportunity at a conference last week to hear uh, this incredibly brilliant woman named Dr. Joy DeGruy, um speak about um, a number of issues relating to education, um, particularly of um, low-income black folks. And um, she brought up this, this phrase, this concept called the intergenerational transmission of trauma. And she said, um, you know, she wrote this book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And she talks about how slavery 
has a legacy that affects the five-year-old boys that are in kindergarten today, that affects the five-year-old girls that are in kindergarten today. And it's been such a long process that the impacts are very hard to, to pick out, right? Um, but with her background in, in uh, clinical psychology mm -hmm. and in social work, um, she applies both of these approaches, a very humane approach, at the same time a very clinical approach, to trying to understand the impacts. And um, so she talks about that intergenerational transmission of trauma, but then she pointed to Portland specifically, and she said the serial displacement of the black community is trauma. That mm -hmm. is massive trauma that has been um, inflicted on this community. And so at a time where the black community had finally, you know, um, adjusted to the conditions that were created by redlining and said, hey, we are a community, we have unity, we know each other, there are professionals as well as working class people, we're all connected. Then this process of, well, we've got to redevelop, you know, and the, and the um, Portland Development Commission comes in, throws this money in, and all of a sudden property values go up. Mm -hmm. Black community is now, again, going back to that ring, they're being pushed out. So now that unity of the black community, um, while the, the locus is, is shifting pretty solidly to uh, the East, uh, East County, there's a disbursement and this dislocation that has shaken the foundations of the black community. And so um, the level of organization that brought, for instance, the first multicultural curriculum uh, in the United States was in Portland Public Schools mm. because the black community organized in the late 70s and through the 80s to get that to get that happening seeing something like that again today i don't think that's as possible because of of the the um socioeconomic process of gentrification and i would like to mention too on that ring uh that you're saying that people are being pushed out to this ring what we talked about earlier dell is like the numbers you see a large increase of these these populations moving to this the so-called numbers and what's out in these numbers they call it the food desert because there's mm -hmm. no grocery stores there's no new seasons in these neighborhoods there's no health food stores there's no progressive minded you know food oriented things like that it's going to be a corner store with not healthy food not healthy malt liquor right mm -hmm. and yeah, joy joy degrew dr degrew brought that up too she's like you know i saw they got that uh they got that new seasons on williams and she said to herself, she's like, what is going on here? So she walked into the New Seasons and she sat in the eating area and looked out the window. And she said, people were walking by and looking at her like, what are you, what are you doing in there? And, and, you know, and then seeing the black folks looking like they don't know where they are, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting, too, that, that the dislocation can happen internally, right? That they're in the same place. But the place is changing so that it becomes unrecognizable as something that, mm -hmm. that belongs to them that's theirs. In that same neighborhood, I was in that same neighborhood a, a couple weeks, a couple months ago, and I walked outside of this bar. I went and got a drink, you know, with my friend. We, I walk outside and look around at all these apartment buildings and the people that were walking down the street. And I was like, man, three years ago, three years ago, these people wouldn't be here. These buildings wouldn't be here. That's like no time at all. That's how I felt about Mississippi. Uh, we moved here only two years ago, right? So mm. when we first moved here, we uh, went on Mississippi, and there were a few buildings. I wanted to go to the uh, nursery that was there, um, and there was, you know, a lot of um, black people outside. You could see actually people, like, chilling in front of their 
porches, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then we just went back there, like it's like two years later. They have like this little big burger and 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 this area uh, with that um, the Laughing Planet and stuff that yeah. looks really crazy. But across the street, they have these crazy looking apartments. Yeah. Like yeah. so wealthy looking, yeah. I don't even know who can afford to live there, yeah. and and it's really sad because you know it's going to keep expanding, and that this very small house that's just at the corner of um, of you know that street is definitely going to be going to be engulfed, and the people who've been maybe homeowners for years of this particular house are going to have to move. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd also like to comment on that same block because one of my best friends who actually grew up down the street from me in Southwest, he went to school at Jefferson High School. So I'd go out there and hang out a lot in my early teens. And we'd hang out on, on Mississippi. And so, I mean, that neighborhood's changed so dramatically. Also, my mom, she grew up on Beach Street, which is right off of Mississippi there. And I remember recently I was over there with the same friend, and he's like, man, 10 years ago, when I was in high school, this was so different. You had to know where you were. You had to know that these blocks were this gang, these blocks were that gang. If you were in the wrong colors, you'd get jumped. You have to navigate around stuff. And people nowadays might go, oh, well, look at it now. Look at the neighborhood now. Oh, isn't that like great that this is gone? No, you're not solving the problem. You're just mm-hmm. pushing it around. Mm-hmm. You're not really looking at the issue. You're like looking at a Band-Aid for a giant wound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that, that McManamans, it's right there on Killingsworth, uh, just down the street from the, um, the chapel uh, that's just down the street from Jeff. You know, how many families in the black community laid people to rest in that building? And now you can go get a burger. You know, what, what does that say to that community? Um, that it, it's, it's just um, it's completely disrespectful and devastating. And, and you know, over on Mississippi, um, I was talking to a, and full disclosure, you know, I've been to Little Big Burger and I've, you know, I, I've done some shopping over there on that strip, right? And you see the the black folks that you know are from the community and you see that look again, you know, that, that look of just kind of a lostness, like this is not the place that it was just a short time ago. And I was talking to a friend about the rebuilding center that's right there. And I was like, man, it's cool. It's like this eco building. And he's like, you know, that basically that place exists because of the dismantling of the neighborhood they take the houses apart and that's where the houses the pieces end up and then the people who are moving in and fixing up the houses that's that's where they're pulling their parts from for the houses you know and that's what's that's that is the the processing center for the dismantling of that community and that just was like you know, just blew my mind, right? Because it's like, they're doing good, they're, you know, reducing, um, you know... uh, Construction waste. And and that's the Portland thing, right? I mean, people move to Portland for things like this. Yeah. And so how is it that we come to a place where instead of fostering our community and the people who live here, we try to attract people from the outside by pretending to be something that Mm. really we are not? Mm. Well, I want to mention about that. That's just like Portland style, you know? Like people, I remember, okay, I worked at a restaurant recently and someone looks at me and goes, can I ask you something? I'm like, yeah. Are you from Portland? I'm like, yes, I'm from Portland. How'd you know? I could just tell by the way you dressed. And I was like, oh yeah, is there a way? She's like, I just know that dress. Now think about it. So many people move to Portland and they buy the clothes that looks like it for really expensive. It's kind of like, why are you buying this style of life when it's just, this is our life, man. Like you're trying to replicate this stuff and, 
kind of you're attracted by this community oriented stuff, but you're not participating in the community and helping out the community. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like people. Okay, another good good quote. You know, I speak kind of metaphorically, but my friends like I'm like keep Portland weird. Portland's always been a great place for the underdog and people with the undervoice. Kabu especially. Thank you. I mean, I love to support Kabu. Amen. Um, so people are moving here because they see the weird. Oh, Portlandia, people are so crazy. Let's move to this city. But they're not bringing the weird. They're scaring the weird away. Um, last Thursday, I thought last Thursday totally went down the drain when the clown house left. There used to be a clown house full of clowns. It was great. They got evicted. And ever since then, it's just been a party. It's been no longer about the art, people selling the art. It's been about people getting drunk and walking around in circles. Yeah, yeah. And um, thank, thank you for sharing this story about their rebuilding center. I had no idea. And, it, and, and it's another, you know, that's why I'm looking at gentrification through the lens of hip-hop because I think that it's something everybody would tell you, I love hip-hop. It's mm-hmm. so hip, it's so this, it's so that. And very few people actually understand the, that hip-hop is a culture. It's not just a genre of music. Mm. But, and the, the people are just like so into it. But then whenever it goes to like going to a club and they see people that they think are threatening, of course, you know, media plays a big part in who is threatening in our society. Mm-hmm. But then they don't want a part of it. Right, so they want to be able to walk in safe streets, to have their little restaurants, to go to places where can, they can be green and they can be this and they can be that, and they all still want to be hip. But then, as you say, they're not able to support the community or just even embrace mm-hmm. who is part of the community. Right, mm-hmm. and I would like to talk about uh, other aspects or elements of hip hop other than just the music, and also. Primarily, I would not like to bash the rebuilding center. I would like to support them more than uh, a Home Depot or something like that. Absolutely. So, to make that clear, I'm not trying yeah. to... It's just complicated, right? Yeah. I'm not trying to take away business yeah. from the rebuilding center. No, and but, I no, and they do good work. It, it just, you know, it flipped things for me, right? And it was sure. that critical perspective. I've never thought about that, actually, myself. Yeah. yeah. But also, I'd like to say um, we're focusing so much, and we view so much of this on music and racial issues around music and shows. But also I feel like um, the art movement here, the graffiti scene here, has always been very repressive. Um, Growing up, one one center that I thought was always really great was NAC, New American Casuals, that uh, hosted a lot of graffiti, a lot of hip-hop shows. They bring in artists, international artists to do paintings, DJs, breakdancers. So that was a really big exposure for me to get into the scene and meet people. Um, But obviously the place shut down because the city, they hated it, you know? And the, the problem is with the city is they think the graffiti is directly correlated with gangs. Mm-hmm. No matter what, they don't understand the culture. If there is a wall that gets tagged all the time, you paint a mural over it, a beautiful mu- mural that will like brighten the community, brighten the neighborhood, they think it's graffiti-oriented. Uh, a story that happened recently, uh, a big artist, I believe he's out of Chicago, um, or might have been, he might have been out of the Bay, excuse me if I'm forgetting, but he's done, he's done pieces in Chicago and New York all around. He was in town recently, and there's a wall that often, often gets bombed, you know, by graffiti artists. So he contacted the owner of the building to paint a mural on it. He was only in town for like a week or something like this. Starts painting on it, the cops show up, and he either called or the owner showed up and said it was okay that he painted this mural on the wall. Well, the cops leave. Then about 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, the graffiti task force shows up. And they start yelling at him, going, this was not approved by the city. 
you have to pay a $250 fee, wait like a week to a month to be approved by the city, which I don't believe is that the fact. Um, so he had to buff his own, own mural, and he couldn't do his own mural. Well, this kind of is a controversial thing. Why would the graffiti task force not want that mural there? Maybe because people bomb it all the time. That keeps their job relevant. Right. Not to mention, like, what authority should they have over somebody else's property? You know, if if the building owner wants that um, displayed on the side of his building, isn't that his prerogative? Would the Would the graffiti task force be showing up if it was a clear channel billboard, you know, that was advertising alcohol? No. You know, that that's perfectly legitimate com- commerce, right? So we can get blasted with these corporate messages all day long. Mm-hmm. And where's our where's our corporate advertising task force that looks for, um, you know, lies in advertising and then finds the, the companies who lie to us? <laughs> you know, um, that's what I want to see in my community. I don't I, I, I don't think there's any place for a graffiti task force to be cracking down on um, any mural, in my opinion, uh, let alone a, a perfectly legitimate um, piece of art that was commissioned by the, the property owner. You know, we're supposed to value property rights in this country. And yet, um, you know, because, again, of the associations and connotations that hip hop culture has mm-hmm. in the wider culture of the United States, uh, you know, we, we, we find ourselves in this situation where we're paying police officers to um, come and crack down on legitimate expression. is music by Northern Draw, a.k.a. Kip Kruger. You're listening to Bread and Roses. I'm Delphine Crescenzo. And tonight, I play an interview with Chris Reiser and Kip Kruger, during which we discuss hip-hop and gentrification in Portland. And in this final part of our interview, Kip and Chris were discussing the stigmatization of activities that have been associated with gang affiliation. Uh, Kip, you had mentioned uh, gangs and how your friend said, you know, uh, 10 years ago back on Mississippi, it was really hard to navigate the streets. You really needed uh, to make sure you knew what was going on. So why do you guys think the situation about gangs is in Portland? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then how also um, maybe the fear of gangs and of gang members has kind of affected uh, the black community as a whole? I remember reading this article in the Tribune a long time ago, and the article, it just made me so mad because it conflated um, gang, like, territorial tagging with uh, graffiti. And so anything that was spray-painted, basically the only the only thing they had in common was the media, right? So it's like, if somebody you know, writes a death threat with a pen, does that mean that we should be outlawing everybody who writes with a pen? You know, it was like, that's the logic. Like, these guys go out and they mark their 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 boundaries of their territory, right, by writing, you know, 13th Street, 18th Street, whatever, on their fence. Um, that's legit. If the police want to collect that data, 
that's great, but this article totally conflated the two, and the gang, ta- the graffiti task force completely conflates the two and says wherever you see graffiti, there's more crime. And it, it was a complete, you know, um, um, just misnomer uh, for what is actually going on. The two communities have very, well, I don't want to go so far as to say they have very little overlap, but the two activities are completely different activities. And nine times out of ten, the graffiti artist that's painting that full-color mural is not affiliated with a gang. Nor a criminal. Right. Well, I'm, I'm not going to be able to speak much about gangs other than the graffiti point in particular because I, I just, that's not part of my reality. I was never tried to be into that reality at all. Um, but graffiti-wise, if anyone that does you know, that style of art, that element, you, anyone knows what a gang tag is versus someone with a hand style, you know, with a with a, a name, you know, um, everyone, everyone knows, knows that, but maybe they're using it as another tool just to, to, to downplay like these scenes and kind of like use the law against them. I mean, there's lots of scenes, uh, of music right now and just beyond hip hop that like the club owners are being considered club sympathizers, but you know, maybe he's using it as a crutch to take over these clubs. I don't know. The club thing is interesting, right, because there's the whole dress code thing, which um, Kip and I were talking uh, last week and talking about how, you know, it's a phenomenon that's not just taking place here but all over the country. And I had heard about this guy. He was, you know, he was in New York City and, um, you know, middle class guy. He's like, you know, I'm, I make decent money and I go to this club on a like a Wednesday night and, you know, just slide right in. And, and then I go back to the club on a Friday night, but it's a hip hop night. And all of a sudden, they tell me I can't be wearing what I'm wearing. And, you know, he said to the bouncer, he's like, "Um, I just came here on Wednesday night and you didn't do this. Why are you doing this now? And he's like, well, because it's hip hop night. And he's like, so what does that mean? And so he went home and he started checking into it, researching, like, is this even legal? And uh, sure enough, they have every right, according to the law in uh, New York, to discriminate based on the event and but that's what it comes down to it's this coded discrimination that all of a sudden this man can't wear certain clothes on a certain night um, or certain colors on a certain night and it's the same thing that's happening here you know uh, where you can't wear a bandana you can't um, wear certain colors into uh, a club on the weekend um, because you know so now all of a sudden blue and red are illegal (laughs) you know like you just can't wear it on the same on the same point, I noticed recently, like maybe a couple months back, I was playing a show at Valentine's right in that alley of Ankeny downtown, which is really popular now. And this is during the summer, so um, I've never noticed it before. It was it was you know pretty popular, and I'm looking around, and it's a pretty diverse crowd. I was surprised because Portland is primarily a very white city, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, this is cool, you know, I'm like nice. And then I'm looking outside the window, and I'm like, one cop, two cop, three cops. There's just cops hanging out everywhere, and I'm like, what's going on? Why is why is there these cops with like you know bulletproof vests on outside? Oh, apparently there's a hip hop show next door. Mm. I was like, what? Wait, oh, okay. So they can do that any other Saturday night? They're not here looking around for drunk people in general, just beating each other up, you know, or something like that. And then driving home. Or driving home, yeah, endangering <laughs> anyone else's yeah. life, you know. Yeah. 
but uh, to your point, um, actually in 2011, the Willamette Week did an article on that particular dress code. Mm-hmm. So the police of Portland is actually doing uh, presentations to uh, club owners. So they go out to clubs and they tell them exactly how to dress profile. Why? Because it's not racial profiling, because it's illegal. Uh, But dress profile uh, people for uh, potential uh, gang affiliation. Right. So basically how to discriminate within the parameters of the law. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to speak on not solid evidence, but it's not really a theory that this, this city has its roots of racism. There's a picture, I believe, from 1920s of the mayor of Portland shaking hands with the the head of the Ku Klux Klan, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, with those roots, I mean, it's going to affect our current day state, especially with music that that does speak to a a larger audience or has a larger performance base from different cultures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Portland being, always being like this white utopia and being like a medium-sized city and not having a larger population of uh, different ethnic groups, um, it's, it has that scare tactic, the scare of the unknown, and maybe that's the one thing is these people up on the hill, you know, no pun intended, might be looking at these cultures from the outside and they're like shaking in their boots but really don't know what's going on. Yeah, for sure. I was going to say uh, earlier that the idea of the Pacific Northwest, you know, this idea we were talking about people coming here to be hip and to be close to nature and all that stuff actually has really deep roots because in the move west right we were like the final frontier and so oregon and the northwest specifically always had this idea in the minds because of the way it was reported back east that this was this land of wonder of natural wonder and beauty because basically european folks hadn't made it out here to tear it up yet right and so that mystique has that's always been kind of a trope of um portland and the pacific northwest um more generally and so all we're seeing is is basically a new riff a new improvisation on that same trope um with the push for sustainability and we need to push for sustainability but with justice right and um yeah so uh there's that idea and then there's this in, in Oregon, this, you know, from the, the very foundations of the, of the state, you know, with the black exclusion clause that was put into the Constitution, the Oregon Constitution, with the first governor of the territory was the one who um, negotiated with a small Indian tribe to have five people executed without trial um, for being allegedly involved in the Marcus Whitman massacre. Okay, so the guy who brokered that deal was the first governor of the Oregon Territory. And, um, you know, so from then on, it's just been that way. And they, they, Oregon has been, you know, referred to as, you know, the, the south of the Pacific Northwest. And, um, you know, in my extended family, there are people who uh, were involved in the KKK in the 20th century. And uh, in having that conversation with my family... Um, it was interesting because the way that, that, um, that the person who told this story, um, justified it was, he said, oh, it was just a social thing. And I said, well, you know, my wife is white. And I said, well, you know, he probably wouldn't have been too happy about this, you know, (laughs) and everybody laughed, but, um, because it was, it was awkward. Right. But I was making the point that, you know, it wasn't just a social thing, you know, it was a racial thing. And, um, 
you know, very influential people in the city um, had their hands all up in the racist activities that took place. My mother-in-law told me that growing up, they used to burn crosses on Council Crest. They used to burn crosses on Mount Tabor because you could see them for miles around. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the 50s, 60s. I heard a story about Laurelhurst, Laurelhurst neighborhood. I don't know how true it is. My friend told me this. You know how there's gates going into Laurelhurst on mm-hmm. Burnside and also from Sandy, mm-hmm. that they would close those at nighttime because they didn't want African Americans to come in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Walida Imarisha, mm-hmm. an adjunct over at um, PSU in the Black Studies Department, she does, um, I don't know if you'd call it a seminar, but uh, yeah. she did a lecture, actually. I got it on the KBU flash drive. <laughs> um, Why isn't there more black people in Oregon? Yes. And, you know... Um, she gets into all of that, but that you know that's what we're talking about now is is that um, the the city leaders worked very hard to mm-hmm. um, keep black folks out um, as long as possible. And so, do you think that that's also what gentrification is uh, in some ways, um, an, an, another attempt at um, keeping you know this core area of Portland? I think. I don't. I don't know how intentional it is. Um, I'm sure in the minds of some folks um, who have influence, who have um, money, that that it may very well be. But I think it's the thing is we have to remember that racism is is endemic within our institutions. So even though we're trying not to be racist, the systems that we have in place are just perpetuating it, and that includes our economic system and you also have to factor in white privilege, right? That white folks don't have to think about race. They have the luxury of not thinking about the impacts of things that they do and how they adversely impact um, people of color and low-income folks uh, for for white folks who are more affluent. Um, And so when they see the blight that um, had become the black community, Right, because of the processes that were put in place that were explicitly racist, and then in the late 90s are looking at, well, this is just terrible. They're not thinking because of that white privilege that in that lens that they don't have to be able to put on. Well, how is this going to infect uh, affect our people of color? They're just like, wow, we need to fix that up. Let's pour some money in there, and the impacts that come, intentional or not, still roll out on on racial. Lines. And I would like to say, too, that th- this story has been told many times in many different cities all across the United States. Mm-hmm. And whether it's conceived racially or not, it's outside interests that are coming in and spending that money to change these, these, these housing runs. Maybe some from, from Portland, but Oregon's economy is not that big. It's not that big to, to have this huge, to push this huge, for this huge infrastructure, you know. Mm-hmm. So people, I mean, people with power know what's going on, and they've done this before. Yeah. Um, as we get ready to wrap up, um, I'd like to ask, what do you think the city of Portland could do to be more uh, inclusive uh, and, and, and more uh, culturally sensitive whenever it comes to um, um, the hip-hop scene, the hip-hop culture, and the African-American culture as a whole? So I would like to, uh, to say, I would like to give a, a brief, brief positive note to some organizations that they are out there doing things. I'd really like to thank Zulu Nation for always being part of um, the community and always helping out. I think that's a good, good aspect right there in the community. Every month they were having uh, First Friday shows, potlucks, everyone invited, breakdancing, live music, you know, events like this. Um, 
And I think it's also really up to ourselves as a hip-hop community um, to unify and find more of a place. We can't just keep on blaming it just because the venue shuts down, um, but really supporting each other in, in all across the elements. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, critical race theory basically looks at racism as being um, not only endemic but permanent. Um, and I kind of go back and forth on whether or not I um, wholeheartedly agree with the tenet that racism is permanent, a uh, permanent feature of our society because, you know, there's there's a piece of me that, that hopes that we can really bring an end to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, that said, um, I think that really the way that things are going to change is, it, as Kip said, is that we have to come together as people, the people, and we need to assert ourselves uh, to the system because the system is not going to change. Again, it is, it is, op- it is, its operating system is racist and classist and um, sexist. We, and sexist, absolutely, and ageist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, across it is oppressive. Okay, the systems that we have in place are oppressive across all of those intersections, and we are going to have to be the ones uh, to change it. You know, Paul Cienfuegos, um, who's been organizing in the community here for a while now since Occupy Portland started, he's on to something. What what the organization that he's involved with and where he got his stuff from. Um, the uh, corporation, uh, the program on corporations, law, and democracy, they're they they're onto something. Instead of us trying to fight our way one at a time through the legal system that's been built by uh, the by the corporate state, <clears throat> we need to reassert our rights that are um, that are already put forth in the in the constitution and in our state constitution that we have all the power. All power is inherent in the people, so we have to organize. We have to realize that, and we have to act on it. Um, and then I want to give a shout-out to the um, Coalition of Communities of Color because they're working extremely hard um, to bring unity um, amid this, this gentrification and displacement and to try to organize that ring into a unified voice that speaks for the poor, that speaks for um, people of color, um, no matter where they are in the greater Portland area. And I think that's what we need is more grassroots organizing. We need a long view. Uh, definitely Zulu Nation is, is bringing it on the specifically hip-hop tip. There's some great um, artists out there, you know, Speaker Minds, um, Rose Bent. Um, Mike Crenshaw. Mike Crenshaw, Dina B. Dina B. Um, you know, so many people doing wonderful things. And, um, you know, we just got to get together. We got to set our agenda, and then we got to make it happen. Um, but it's up to us. Yeah, I agree. And let's bring it back to the roots of hip hop. You know, let's bring it back to having community events, organizing ourselves, having a good time, getting together, having the barbecue, the dancing, a good time, and let's talk. Let's plan out our future. Where are we going to go? How are we going to build this infrastructure for hip hop and more of that of culture of different people within Portland? Yeah. And that sounds very Portland, actually. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. Any final words? Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. Shout out to DJ Common Denominator, the the missing link be- between Kip and I here. Wish you were here. Yeah. Um, yeah, just keep doing your thing, hip-hop, uh, Portland hip-hop. You got, There's so much good music out there. I love listening to it, and I love my city, and I'm, I'm committed to affecting real radical change. 
I'd also like to thank all the Roots of Hip Hop and your large tentacle that's spread all across the world and influenced so many people of all different denominations, of all different races and uh, viewpoints. And I hope that you grow and, and influence many other people to grow through a very spirit. Well, you're listening to Brad and Roses. I think that Kip was saying a spiritual path. Um, you've been listening to Brad and Roses. I'm Delphine Crescenzo. Uh, we are a collective of women identify radio activists, and we bring you feminist news and public affairs. We always welcome new collective members. You can contact Ani Haines. She is um, KBU's volunteer coordinator, and her email is volunteer at kboo.org. You can also find us on the web, kboo.fm slash Brad and Roses, and also like us on Facebook, um, kboo. Bread and Roses is where you can find us. Um, Friday at 6 p.m. Um, I'll be back with Leanne Kranz, and we'll be interviewing Joy Harjo, renowned Native American poet, musician, and author. She'll speak about, about her forthcoming visit to Portland. And so I thought in honor of that particular show, I'll be playing um, a song from Joy Harjo and Poetic Justice, later from the end of the 21st century, is the name of the city, and the song is The Real Revolution is Love. We're houseplants as big as down Thank you. 